Welcome to the Shadron Berean Church Podcast, where you'll find some of the latest teachings from Shadron Berean Church in Shadron, Nebraska. We are a loving community of believers growing in God's grace in Christ together. The heartbeat of our church is to have deep roots in the Word of God and to bear fruit by passionately applying it to our lives by His power for His glory. And we thank you for joining us. In my office, I have one electrical outlet, just one outlet, and with an out with one outlet, usually, obviously, you can only plug in two devices because there's only two receptacles usually. Well, at least in my office, I have four receptacles in this outlet. But you know, with all the gadgets we have these days, your phone, the church's phone. The iPad, the computer, the second computer screen, the, maybe the third computer screen. There's just a lot of different gadgets. And even four receptacles just doesn't quite do it. And that's why they make these things called power strips. Surge protecting power strips. Well, in this plugged into prayer series, we've been talking about reconnecting with God through prayer. Mostly individually, like a single receptacle. But we also should make it a point to pray with each other. And so I want us to think more along the lines this morning of being connected together. More of a power strip, I guess you could say, than a single outlet receptacle. And to do that, we're going to revisit or visit the encouraging book of Acts. For those of you who are newer or visiting, I say revisit because we just finished the book of Acts earlier this year. And it was, a, it was a great time. I've told, I've told people that yeah, preaching through the book of Acts was like the best thing I've ever done with my life. I just enjoyed it that much. But that's because I'm kind of a history, geography, archaeology nerd. But we learn from the book of Acts how to pray. Prayer is throughout that, that book of Acts. We, we're going to learn from the nascent or newborn church how to pray. And I'm going to use that word nascent church today. It just means newborn. Because there's a lot of talk out there about the early church. And sometimes that's a reference to the church from AD 325 all the way back to AD 33. They consider that the early church days, the early church fathers. Well, When I talk about the early church today, I'm going to talk about the nascent church. Not 325, but that time period from May 24, 33 AD at Acts chapter 2 at Pentecost to about 60 years later when the Apostle John died, somewhere in the 90s. So that's what we're looking at, the nascent, newborn, early, early church. And this church was a church that prayed and prayed persistently. They were a praying people. Um, what's, what's neat is, is prayer is mentioned 31 times in the book of Acts in 28 chapters, and in 20 of the 28 chapters, uh, prayer is mentioned. And what's interesting about prayer in the book of Acts is that it's mostly corporate. 
involving more than one individual. You don't see individuals praying, you see the church praying together with and for each other. And that's how Luke characterizes this nascent church as a people of prayer. And today's sermon is going to be a bit different. We aren't going to walk through the text slowly necessarily. We're more or less going to fly over a few different texts. Not walking through one text, we're going to fly over some texts, not get into the details too much, because again, we want to get an aerial view of what the prayer life of the early church was like and learn from their example. So let's look at Acts chapter 1, verses 12 through 14, where we see the church continually devoted to prayer. Acts chapter 1, verse 12. 12 says, Then they returned to Jerusalem from the mount called Olivet, which is near Jerusalem, a Sabbath day's journey away. When they had entered the city, they went up to the upper room where they were staying, that is, Peter and John and James and Andrew, Philip and Thomas, Bartholomew and Matthew, James the son of Alphaeus, and Simon the zealot, and Judas the son of James. These all with one mind were continually devoting themselves to prayer, along with the women and Mary, the mother of Jesus, and with his brothers. And so this takes place right after Jesus' ascension, right after he returns back to heaven. He instructs them right before he goes to wait for the Holy Spirit who is going to arrive and essentially inaugurate the new covenant, effectually applying the new covenant realities, spiritual realities, to their lives. They're going to be sealed by the Holy Spirit of God and they are going to be equipped by that Spirit with spiritual gifts and they are going to be empowered to do gospel ministry. And so they return from the Mount of Olives to the upper room where they're going to wait. Probably the same upper room where Jesus held the Passover on the night of his betrayal. Could have been Mark's mother's home. But Acts 1.15 tells us there's about 120 of them here in this upper room And with one mind, they're continually devoting themselves to prayer. The word devoting has the idea of ongoing persistence. Ongoing persistence. Persevering in prayer. I'm devoted to it. What are you devoted to? Are you devoted to prayer? The early nascent church here was. So it's a prayer meeting with 120 people, and for who knows how long they were praying. We don't know. We aren't told. But I have no doubt that like we read last week in Luke 11, verse 13, they were expectantly praying for this outpouring of the Holy Spirit that Jesus promised them. We looked at that last week. Jesus said he's going to give them the Spirit in response to their prayers, and there's Old Testament prophecy that talks about that. So they were expectant of this. This new covenant outpouring of the Spirit. And it's during this time of prayer that they think, hey, we need another apostle. Because Judas had defected. 
And so verse 24 says they pray about this need. How many times have you been praying and a need comes to mind? Isn't that interesting? But they recognize the need. And in verse 24 it says they pray about it and they ask for God to sovereignly lead them in this decision. And they choose Matthias. The lot falls to Matthias. And the point I want to make from this episode is that the church is given wisdom and guidance through prayer here. Wisdom and guidance. Who do they appoint to the leadership sort of thing? The church is wiser through prayer. There's a similar situation in Acts chapter 6, verses 1 through 7, where some people are, it's the widows, the Hellenistics, uh, the, the Grecian Jewish women, widows are being overlooked in the serving of food. And rather than the apostles leave their teaching of the word of God and their devotion to prayer, they appoint other men who can then serve those tables, godly men. But the reason for it is that they don't want to take away from the apostles' teaching and prayer ministry. That's amazing. Because of this wise response, the church then continues to grow. And and these are wonderful pictures of the church seeking counsel from God and and seeking His will together through prayer. The second portion of Scripture we want to look at is Acts chapter 2, verses 42 through 47, where we see the church still devoted to prayer. Chapter 2, verse 42. This is after the reception of the Spirit. They were continually devoting themselves to the apostles' teaching and to fellowship and the breaking of bread and to prayer. Everyone kept feeling a sense of awe, and many wonders and signs were taking place through the apostles. And all who had believed were together and had all things in common. And they began selling their property and possessions and were sharing them with all as anyone might have need. Day by day, continuing with one mind in the temple and breaking bread from house to house, they were taking meals together with gladness and sincerity of heart, praising God and having favor with all the people. That's the outsiders. And the Lord was adding to their number day by day those who were being saved. So, again, this text is describing the internal state of the church for the several days and weeks that followed the Spirit's arrival on Pentecost. And at this point, it's still a Jewish church. They're still in Jerusalem. And they're just all in amazement at the things that God is doing among them because God is making it unmistakably clear that He is with this new movement. He's with these apostles. And He's with their teaching. He supports their authority, their teaching, their office with supernatural signs and wonders. It's unmistakable. God had to be behind this. He has to be behind these apostles. That's the only thing that explains the things that are taking place. And the picture again is something that we see here. I think this is a picture of something that we deep down all long for. Like This is the way it was meant to be. This is an ideal picture of the church, isn't it? Living in harmony. They're they're one. They're ideal. They're healthy. They're vibrant. They're learning together. They're enjoying each other's fellowship. 
They are breaking bread together, which means they're enjoying table fellowship. They're having meals together and taking, partaking of the Lord's Supper together. And they're also, notice, praying together. There's four things, teaching, fellowship, bread, and prayer. And the word fellowship here is one to point out. It's the Greek word koinonia. It's a special word that signifies complete oneness. Oneness or doing life together. That's what they were doing. That's what the church was doing. They were doing life together. This is a word that is sometimes used to describe the mutuality between a husband and a wife. They're one. And you see this fellowship, particularly in their care for one another. We talked about this more in our study of Acts, but their care for one another is not socialism. In a first you know, cursory reading, it might look that way, but there were a lot of pilgrims in town who had come to Jerusalem for Pentecost, and because of the things that were taking place here, they didn't want to leave. They didn't want to go back home. I wouldn't want to go back home. Look at what God is doing in, in this place. And so a lot of out-of-towners are here, and, and people who lived in Jerusalem are giving up their homes and their possessions to help them those who are there who are in need, and it's just a really ideal picture. But their care for each other is no doubt, I think, due in part to their praying together. Everything they did was bathed in prayer. And when we're praying together as a church, praying about things we need as a church and in our lives, you know, the needs become aware, and then people are stirred to meet those needs. I think that's how that works. That unity that they had, too, was just so attractive to outsiders. The prayer was sparking this unity, and it just had a way of building and fostering unity among them. And it was very attractive. So that's the second principle. Churches, the church is unified through prayer. The church is unified through prayer. You know, we went through the, what they call the Lord's Prayer, a few weeks ago, and we looked at that in greater detail, but I did leave out the corporate nature of the Lord's Prayer for a reason, because I knew we would come to it in a couple of weeks. That prayer, the Lord's Prayer, Matthew 6, is located within the sermon series teaching called the Sermon on the Mount. It's a block of teaching called the Sermon on the Mount at the end of the Sermon on the Mount, closer to the end of it. But throughout the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus is constantly using individual pronouns. I don't even like, pronouns is like a curse word these days, isn't it? But <laughs> grammatically, this is what you see in Scripture. Jesus is addressing individual people. Uh, talking about uh, how we as individuals should live our lives. But it's interesting, when he gets to the prayer you see the plural pronouns come out. All of a sudden, it's our Father in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread. Forgive us our debts as we forgive our debtors. Do not lead us into temptation. Deliver us from evil. So it's a corporate prayer. It's a good reminder 
that we were meant, we were made to pray together as Christians. We don't live in isolation, at least I hope we don't. We don't have to. We all have a local church body we can be a part of. But even if our own family ostracizes us, or our friends for our faith, faith reasons maybe start to distance themselves from us, or we get fired from our job, or we, you know, the world just hates us because of our stance on truth and morality, well, we're still never alone. As Christians, we know that we always have each other. And that's something that's never, ever going away. It's going to last throughout all of eternity. As a church, that, isn't that good news? You never have to be alone. And so we are called to lean on God together. Our Father, give us. It's not just give me me, my, and mine, and when you pray in isolation, even when you pray in isolation, you should still be praying for others as well. And so we lean on God through prayer. We're praying for each other, praying with each other, being unified as needs uh, become known and those needs are met. It's this praying together that draws us closer together and removes so many of the obstacles in our relationships. You know, when you when you're praying for someone, it's pretty hard to get them out of your lives entirely, isn't it? I'm just going to ignore this person until they start treating me right. What did Jesus say? Pray for your enemies. right? So prayer just removes obstacles. And he can turn your enemies. You start to bless your enemies. <laughs> it's just That's what prayer can do. To pray for one another is like the highest charity. It's like the highest form of of love. One man said, he loves me best who loves me in his prayers. Praying for someone is an expression of Christ-like love. To pray for one another is to be like Jesus. You want to be Christ-like? Pray for each other. Because he's a high priest for us, and we get to be believer priests for others. We, he brings us before God's throne and we get to bring others before his throne as well in prayer. You want to be like Jesus? Pray for others. The third passage we want to look at is Acts chapter 4, 23 through 31. Acts chapter 4, just turn a couple of pages in your Bible probably and you'll be there. As we uh, come to this text, we need to note that persecution has begun officially for the church. Peter and John were arrested and they were threatened to never speak or teach in the name of Jesus again. And here we see the church praying in response to that with one accord. Again, it's that one mind, one accord. Verse 23 says, When they had been released, they went to their own companions and reported all that the chief priests and the elders had said to them. And when they heard this, they lifted up their voices to God with one accord and said, O Lord, here's their prayer, O Lord, it's you who made the heavens and the earth and the sea and all that is in them, who by the Holy Spirit, through the mouth of our father David, your servant, said, Why did the Gentiles rage and the peoples devise futile things? The king of the earth, the kings of the earth took their stand and the rulers were gathered together against the Lord and against his Christ. For truly, in this city, they're they're praying scripture there. Isn't that great? 
For truly in this city there were gathered together against your holy servant Jesus, whom you anointed, both Herod and Pontius Pilate, along with the Gentiles and the people of Israel, to do whatever your hand and your purpose predestined to occur. And now, Lord, take note of their threats and grant that your bondservants may speak your word with all confidence while you extend your hand to heal and signs and wonders take place through the name of your holy servant, Jesus. And when they had prayed, the place where they had gathered together was shaken and they were all filled with the Holy Spirit and began to speak the word of God with boldness. So again, just another miraculous account with this nascent church, God confirming his presence among them. And Peter and John, when they're released, it says the church came together and prayed. They lifted up their voices to God in one accord. Some of you guys might have read that and thought they were in all riding in one Honda, right? That's not what it means by one accord. It means they were all praying this together. It's a corporate prayer. And notice how they acknowledge. Look where they start in their prayer. Where do they start? They start with their Lord who is in heaven. They acknowledge him as the Father in heaven. They say, they acknowledge first that he is the maker of heaven and earth. Which basically means... He's got a better perspective on this persecution situation than they do. And he's sovereign over it. They they see that. He's the one, they say, who predestined Christ's crucifixion to occur. In other words, it's not an accident. And so because God is sovereign, they they trust God in their situation that they're currently going through. That trust comes out in their prayers. Notice that what they didn't pray. They didn't pray, Lord, Make this persecution stop, or Lord, keep us safe. Now, there's nothing wrong with that prayer. Jesus taught us to pray, Lord, keep us from temptation. Protect us from the evil one, right? That's an okay prayer. But they acknowledge now that more important than their own self-preservation is God's mission, God's word. And what you see in the book of Acts is that so often opportunity to advance the gospel comes equally with opposition. The opportunity comes with the opposition. So it looks like they're kind of divided here, like God's going to use this. It's interesting. Uh, They ask God, they just say, they don't say like stop the threats, all that. They just say, God, take note of their threats. Jot it down and give us boldness to keep preaching the gospel. This is one of the most powerful prayers in all the Bible, and it's a prayer that God honors with a holy earthquake. And so the principle here is the church is bolder through prayer. The church is bolder through prayer. And yeah, I realize I spelled through wrong up there on the slide. But this is thurug instead of through. It keeps us laughing, right? But they're granted boldness in the face of opposition through prayer. And they're saying, you know... We're going to keep following God. We're going to do God's will no matter what. It's a good reminder, again, opportunity comes with opposition. They recognize that. And when, whenever I read this portion of Scripture, there's a meme I saw years ago. But I think of this meme, 
And it's this meme of these, these cats going into a prayer room and they come out of the prayer room as lions. You go in this weak, feeble kitten and you come out with a mane. You know, just ready to take on the world. Why? Because you're prayed up. You know that you've committed that to God and you, you just go tackle it. You know, you go do what you feel like he's calling you to do because you know that he's with you and you've committed it to the Lord. That's what prayer can do. But the last section, last text we're going to look at is Acts chapter 13, verses 1 through 3, where we see the church actually worshiping through prayer. Chapter 13, verse 1 says, Now there were at Antioch, in the church that was there, prophets and teachers, Barnabas and Simeon, who was also called Niger, and Lucius of Cyrene, and Manaen, who had been brought up with Herod the Tetrarch, and Saul. So this is, a, this is a diverse group. I love it. While they were ministering to the Lord and fasting, the Holy Spirit said, Set apart for me Barnabas and Saul, or the Apostle Paul, for the work to which I have called them. And then when they had fasted and prayed and laid their hands on them, they sent them away. So here the church has expanded beyond Jerusalem. They are now beyond Samaria. They are in Gentile territory up in Syrian Antioch, Antioch on the Orontes River. And they're now reaching into Gentile territories as a result of God's spontaneous activity. And you just have to think Acts chapter 8, where God takes Philip, boom, puts him on a road in the wilderness to reach one Ethiopian eunuch, and then boom, God takes him, raptures him, puts him somewhere else, and it's just God doing a crazy work. And so now, though, now that they're in Gentile territory, and, and things have progressed in the church, it's getting less spontaneous, it's getting more organized. They're getting more intentional about outreach and where the Lord wants them to go. Jerusalem is still the mother church, but Antioch, the Antioch church in Syria has now become sort of the, the missionary church, the missionary hub. And Paul and Barnabas have been here for a year at least, uh, and they've been teaching and discipling this church, and they're still fervent in their worship. And, and, and in mission, it says there in verse 2, they are ministering to the Lord and fasting. That means they're, they're having a worship service. They're singing praises to God. They're praying. They're fasting. This is a time where these church leaders are just have a spiritual focus on the Lord. And it's during this service of worship that they sense God's calling of Paul and Barnabas to a new work. Not a new office, but a new work beyond their own church walls and their own city walls. God's saying, all right, this church is established. Time to move on. We're calling you to a new work. And I love this because there's so many pastors, and I've done this before, but there's pastors, there's church leaders, there's Christian organizations out there who it's like, after a while... They just kind of settle in and get comfortable. They build a church and then forget that we build churches not just for people to come and worship, but for people to come and be trained and be discipled and sent out and for more churches to be planted. There's pastors out there who, whose, whose engines are idling, basically. They're not hitting the gas pedal. 
They're on the break. They're just trying to get by Sunday after Sunday after Sunday being content with the status quo that they've established. And so the fire that was once there is now just dim, burning embers. And the thrill is gone. The thrill of following the Lord is gone. It's just kind of there. They're just kind of there. They're not going anywhere anymore. They've lost the drive. They're not serving like they should be, looking for new doors, new outreaches. And and so the blessing of following the Lord just isn't there either. And I just don't want that to be us. I really don't. I don't want that to be me. I never want to get tired of serving the Lord. I hope that like these men, 15 years into the ministry, like they are, that they're still fervent in prayer. They're still seeking the Lord, seeking His direction, reaching out, calling them to new places. It came through prayer. These early church, nascent church men and women didn't let that happen to them. And so the principle here is that the church is mobilized through prayer. We're mobilized through prayer. Didn't Jesus say to beseech the Lord of the harvest to send out workers into the harvest? Are we still doing that? Are we sending out workers into the harvest? Let's pray that God would send out people into his harvest. And that's hard because God always sends out some of your best, right? Can you imagine how the church of Antioch felt? Oh, Paul and Barnabas, did they really have to go? Ah, oh, we love these guys, though. It's the Apostle Paul. We've had him for a year. Now God's calling him on. But that's the way ministry is, isn't it? Ministry is always adapting. It's always changing. It's never the same. That's the nature of ministry. You bring new people on. You bring on the Ed Cedos, and then you watch the Gavins and the Jacobs leave. That's just the way it works especially in a college town like this one. People are coming and going, and as a church, we need to recognize that, understand that's okay, and recognize that, hey, if someone leaves, I need to step up and I need to fill those shoes. And we're looking for new people all the time to step in, especially this time of year with all these fall ministries that are kicking off. It's a wonderful time, but... It's also somewhat of a stressful time for those who are looking to appoint people to different ministries. So uh, just be aware of that. What we see uh, in the book of Acts is a church that, that prays. And I don't want to go through all the passages in Acts. I put a few more in your notes if you want to check those out. But again, this is a church that prays. The church is moving forward on its knees as they depend upon God together. If you go through the book of Acts and you look at how they pray, they're moving forward on their knees, depending upon God together. They experience God together in a fuller way than they ever would as an individual Christian. We have a fuller experience of God when we're praying about things together and seeing Him answer prayers and seeing Him work. That's what I want to see here. Prayer is is the heartbeat of the newborn church. For them, prayer is indispensable. It's an indispensable pillar that they could not live without. To be prayerless, I've read more than once in my study on prayer, this quote, everybody understands, to be prayerless is to be powerless. 
To be prayerless is to be powerless, but to be prayerful is to be powerful. And it's not from us, but it's from the power that we get from God to do ministry, to serve Him. To be prayerless as a church would be spiritual suicide. If we don't pray, we're like a power strip that's not even plugged in. What's the point? You have a power strip, but it ain't plugged in. You're not going to go anywhere. But when a church prays, we see that the church is wise. We see that the church is unified. They're bold. They're effective. They're advancing the gospel. They're moving forward. They're energized to live out the Christian life with self-sacrificiality. Where do we get the energy to serve Christ? From Christ, through prayer. Every single one of us is tired. I know, every single one of us is busy. I use that excuse all the time. I'm too busy for that. I get that. But we have a promise from our Savior that he will empower us to live the gospel and to advance it. And let's depend upon him in prayer. Let's do that. All God's people said, amen. So let's learn from the nascent church. Let's be known for being a people of prayer. I don't know about you, but I want to be among a people of praise. I don't care if we get everything right. right. We can have the best coffee in town. We can have coffee better than scooters. We can have all the church programs you could dream of. You know, Bible book clubs, VBS, all these different things, Sunday school, Awana. We can have all of it. But if we don't pray, who cares? Who cares? I'd rather be among a small church that's praying than a church that has all of my consumer needs met. Let's be a church that prays. And the last thing I want for this sermon series is for us to go home, and I've talked about this before, but I just want to reinforce it now that we're finishing it up. I don't want us to think that we have to be some prayer giant with polished prayers. You know what I mean? That's the greatest hindrance to prayer sometimes, is just thinking that I have to have just the right words. I have to pray like that guy in church. Well, I tell you what, man, my kids pray better than me sometimes because they're just so honest and they just say it. I never want them to be afraid to pray out loud. I don't want you to be afraid to pray out loud. For heaven's sakes, that's why God gives us the Holy Spirit to teach us to pray when we don't know how to pray. And that happens all the time. So let's not come away with this thinking that we have to pray poetically. Let's come away knowing that we have a father, we're his children. We just pour out our hearts before him. That's what the early church did. They cried out to him. That group in Acts chapter 1, that 120 people, they weren't some spiritual elites. They didn't have great skill sets. They weren't eloquent with their speech. They were everyday people. When they were arrested, the elders and scribes called them unlearned and unqualified men. But they also recognized them as having been with Jesus. That's what makes the difference. Their power to live for Christ, their advance of the gospel. They advanced the gospel to basically the entire world at the time. In 30 years, that's all it took. And they did it because they were connected to their Savior. They were connecting with Him in prayer. They prayed. According to God's will, what was his will? Advance the gospel, and God answered. 
Pretty powerful stuff. Well, after last week's service, someone came up to me and they shared a story about corporate prayer. Whether they realized it or not, the story has it that during one Sunday school morning worship service, or not Sunday school, one Sunday morning worship service, there was a young boy that was acting up uh, somewhere near the, the front row here. And the parents, you could tell, were doing their best to maintain some order in the pew with this rowdy little guy, but they were obviously failing. And so the father picks up the little boy, throws him over his shoulder, and he starts to walk out the back of the worship center. And as he's walking out the back of the worship center, the little boy is screaming to everybody, pray for me! Pray for me! I thought, that young man knows the power of corporate prayer. That's pretty good stuff. But it does teach us some truth, right? We need each other. We need to pray with each other. We need to pray for, we, for each other. And that's why we're going to open up our doors tentatively, tentatively uh, on Tuesday evening, August 8th. Not this Tuesday, but the week after. I want to have an old-fashioned prayer service here. An old-fashioned prayer meeting from 7 p.m. to 8 p.m., why so late? Because we have a lot of out-of-towners here. Gives you time to come. And uh, we're going to pray for our church family. We're going to pray for our church ministries as we kick off all of the fall ministries going on and these outreaches in our community that we're going to have. So everybody's welcome to come to that August 8th. That's the plan. If it changes, I'll let you know. But that's the plan. So we look forward to that. Let's, let's close in prayer. Our Lord, we're just so thankful for this uh, study on prayer. What a refreshment it's been. I'm, I'm excited personally for the fruit that's going to be born through this, all of the fruit that already has been born through it. Our church, Lord, is, is no doubt uh, growing in more ways than one, and we are just so thankful. We give all the praise to you. There's no doubt about it. The power does not reside in us. We're just a channel through which your current flows. And we just ask that you would continue to use us, continue to empower us to advance the gospel. Lord, help us not to do everything right, but pray. Like I said, we can have the best coffee in town. We can have the best equipment. We can have the best live stream. We can have the best whatever, but we're still powerless without prayer and so I pray that you would make us a praying people a church that advances the gospel while it's on its knees in ways that nobody ever sees because we're going to apply Matthew 6 6 and we're going to shut that door and we're going to pray to our father in private and experience the rewards of fruit through prayer so we just ask that you allow us to continue to be a praying people to reach our community to reach out beyond our walls and beyond our, um, our own circles that we tend to think of as our, our spheres of influence, expand those for us. Restore lives, restore hearts to you, and restore relationships that are broken and needed. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen.